Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. So we are making it easier to live a smarter life by skimming it for you and by making it easier to make decisions. Whether it's here's the, the news that you need in the world around you, these are the events that you need to know about are coming up and they're in your calendar, so these are the product recommendations that we're making. We are making it easier to be an adult. Five million. Five million active. Yes. And you define active users as Oh, but a few times a week. A few times a week. Mm -hmm. So once a week isn't enough. No. Wow, okay. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, tell a friend. This week on the podcast, Daniel Weisberg and Carly Zakin, co-founders and co-CEOs of The Skim. Their core product, The Daily Skim, a newsletter targeting millennial women that keeps you up to date on what's happening in the world. Now, they didn't invent The Daily Newsletter by a long shot, but Weisberg and Zakin are working the kind of magic with it that should make every media executive in the world sit up and take notice. Here's a little context. The New York Times announced recently that it has 13 million subscriptions to its 50 newsletters. Weisberg and Zakin have 5 million subscribers who open just their one newsletter multiple times per week. I caught up with Carly and Danielle at the Skims headquarters on 23rd Street in Manhattan to talk about their journey as business partners and friends, the roots of their entrepreneurial drive, and today's unique challenges for women in the startup game. Here are Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg. So many people from a consumer-facing perspective have kind of resonated with the idea of the brand being uh, the two of us starting from our couch, quitting our jobs, seeing a void in the, in the market for news and matching it towards an audience that's influencing 80% of spending decisions out there. I think what um, is new is the way that we are, I think, articulating what we're really building. So I think for us, what we're recreating in some sense is a bundle around the idea of behavior. Like our product, our product roadmap is really matched from the idea of a voice and what routines do people in this demographic, women 22 to 34, female millennials, what do they do every single day? And how can we bridge the two through technology? Carly, sounds like a magazine. Um, not, that's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, it's, funny. I mean, it's what magazines tried to do back right. before we had all these yeah, other no, ways I, of reaching people. I pause because we don't think magazine. In many ways, we, you know, our former jobs were as TV producers. So we grew up idolizing morning TV, wanting to work on morning television, and thinking, you know, especially as we made this transition to the skim, thinking about what worked about morning television in its heyday. And what worked, when you deconstruct it, is it was two to three hours at some points two to three hours of telling you, here's everything you need to know to be a person, be a functioning person. This is the news, this is the latest movie that's out, the book to read, how to cook your Thanksgiving turkey, this mm -hmm. is the sports game, all of those things. And we all know that the delivery mechanism of that has shifted, the audience has shifted. Our audience is not watching morning TV in those ways anymore, but the producer in us still obviously finds the value in that. So, you know, I think, for us, what we are creating, to Danielle's point, is really a bundle of all the things you need to be an adult and all of the things that you need uh, that ultimately, if you are an adult in a skim life, we are making it easier to live a smarter life. And to be an adult this year, to be an adult no, no. today? So I to, think, like, like what's the, what's you know, the, it's interesting. So I think the bigger part of that is like, how do we define our audience? 
And I think I'm, I'm giving us room to say, as a startup, we can always change our mind. Um, but I think for us, the way that we define our audience is this demographic of female millennials. So 22 to 34 is not just the age range that we're focusing on. Mm -hmm. It is this demographic of people that graduated college when there was a recession or you know just before or, or after, like are living in that after effect. And they're looking at things very differently. How am I gonna save to take care of my parents because their retirement funds may not be there? How am I gonna set myself up for success if social security doesn't exist? How am I gonna work my way through a career if I'm making 20% less than my parents even though I'm more educated? Mm -hmm. How am I dealing with student loans? So I think that demographic for us is like where we're focused and those decisions are really gonna define what adulting is as they move through those life stages. And I think we've built our whole brand around trust, around engagement. When all of the other media companies or the bulk of them really focused on mass media in a sense, going right. after you know wide, shallow audience, we really decided to go focused and deep to really make sure that this audience of female millennials knows that they can trust us at a time when they're so critical of other sources out there. Did you always know it was going to be, because it's called the skim, yeah. which sort of implies it's a quick read. I think what it implies is that we make it easy. And I think for us, you know, there were sort of two things that it implied. When we came up with the name, we, we went back and forth, like, does it have two M's? And we were like, you know what? A little, the extra M is a little something extra. And I think that's what we are. We are a little extra something for people's day. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, we're taking out vowels in a lot of names these days. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we have, have not taken yeah. out a vowel yet. No, you right. added a letter. As, that's a, that's as like, a startup, that's we like might take out a vowel. So we'll just see. Skim <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but for us, Adding an extra uh, but, so I think we, we have a little bit of something extra, but I also think that um, scam implies and kind of connotes that we um, some, you're going to do something quickly. You're going to you're going to get the surface of something, and I think people take sometimes the surface the wrong way. Like we are a gateway to learning more about the world around you, but we make it really easy and understand that time is our the biggest commodity we all have and what we're all most protective of. So we are making it easier to live a smarter life by skimming it for you and by making it easier to make decisions. Whether it's here's the, the news that you need in the world around you, these are the events that you need to know about are coming up and they're in your calendar to these are the product recommendations that we're making. We are making it easier to be an adult. Five million. Over. Over. Well, we're not allowed to say active. Five million active. Yes. And you define active users as? Open a few times a week. A few times a week. Mm -hmm. So once a week isn't enough? No. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How... I mean, you were probably amazed at a million. You probably were paying. I mean, I mean, you have to go back. Like, we yeah. started this like, with four thousand dollars from our couch. Yeah, so like, like I, we, I mean, we read every single subscriber's name. I would say through the first few hundred thousand. Like, I weirdly know people's email addresses. And like, we were at a dinner once recently, and a ambassador was like, "My friend in Oklahoma, um, you know, said he was the first one to sign up me up for the skin." And it was like, "When did he sign up?" And it was like in the first six weeks. He told me his name. I'm like, I remember that email address. And I'm not like making <laughs> it up. Like. We, I remember what it was like to get the first 1,000, like that feeling, like the first 5,000, 8,000 to 50,000. We like, also remember what it was like when people unsubscribe. Yeah. Like we still, we think about those in Just terms so you know, of like. When people start companies, when you say, oh, I'm going to download your app, don't, don't lie to your friend. They can yeah. see and they will see when you unsubscribe. I remember, I know which friends unsubscribed, like we know which people unsubscribe. But I think, I think the point for us is that it's a very personal thing. Like we remember each person as an individual, whether they felt like they could give us their time and attention. And that's something we take very seriously or whether they didn't feel like we were worth it. And I think now when we're five years in, it's still the same idea from like a leadership perspective, right? Like we think about any statistic as like those individuals, like back in the day, we think about them. And I think as we've grown as a company, it's been the values that we had when it was just the two of us have still grown. Hmm. Danielle, I want to understand why you. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like starting something is a bold move. Yeah. When when so many of us are trained to go work for somebody else, yeah. get, get under a big brand, you did that, and then you decided 
to strike off and, and co-found something. Where did that entrepreneurial sense come from? I think... What's the first thing you started? A lemonade stand when I was like five years old. What town? Uh, Chicago. And okay. every year they would like the have... the city of Chicago? That yeah. sounds dangerous. City of Chicago. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I love my hometown. It's fantastic. And every year they have an air and water show. Right. Um, and it brings like a ton of tourists and we lived right off of the water. Mm -hmm. So I would set up a lemonade stand at like the intersection of where all the tourists were and would sell like lemonade for like way too much and it was like, you know, the mixed lemonade. But But you know, kids it was, we buy lemonade yeah, for Exactly, way too much. Yeah. yes, and I made a lot of money. Um like how much? I mean I can't I think it was like a couple hundred. Oh my god, what? Yeah, I remember my little sister <laughs> my little sister did it we are nine years apart, so she did it like the next wave when I outgrew being cute enough to do it. And she made enough on that weekend to buy a MacBook. She bought her first computer from wow. that. Yeah. So I think for wow. both of us, yeah. I, think I for, really started my lemonade stand in the wrong town. Yeah. But I think for both of us, it was our parents. Like we, I think we connected as friends and also great business partners because our parents were always very much like, you have to have a job, you have to have an internship. You know, I think as young women, our, our moms always told us like, you have to have your own way of making money. And that's mm. really important. Um, and you're, I think- You're getting too far ahead of me. Yeah. What did you do with that couple hundred dollars? Oh, what did I do with it? Yeah. I think I gave it to my parents and they put it in a bank account. I don't have a good answer. That's pretty good. Yeah. A bit of a saver. How old were you again? I mean, I was little, like five or six. Five or six? Yeah. I mean, my, it was very much like my parents bucks, putting me out there, but it still. was, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, and then you have a, a younger sister who's nine years younger. Are, are your parents entrepreneurial? Like what, what kind of environment so, did you grow up in business-wise? It's interesting. My dad is very entrepreneurial and I think I saw the ups and downs of what that was like. How? So he started, he ran, um, you know, the Board of Trade in Chicago. Mm. And I think I saw a lot of that perspective of what can happen when technology comes in mm. and computers and online trading replacing a lot of people that were in the pit. And that was my dad's business. Um, and then he went on to kind of start a few other companies with friends in different areas. And I saw, um, in a lot of ways, a great way for my dad about what having passion can do and having the freedom to create your own life. And also the downside of that, which is there's not a lot of stability and it's a big risk. Um, my mom actually has been a huge example for me. So she was a stay at home mom when my sister and I were little. Mm -hmm. And then during the financial crisis, she definitely like started a new career for herself and she went into real estate, which is a lot of branding yourself. Yeah. Um, and so I think watching her do that later in life when I was in an age, like I was in college. So it was very much a learning experience for me about what it takes to dig in and start something from scratch. Hmm. Wow, Carly, lemonade stand? Lemonade stand and iced tea, <laughs> uh, variety. And iced tea. multi prong revenue stream. Yeah. Uh, and the any mixing of the lemonade and no, iced tea? No, no, no. Okay, it's, it's a little very too, simple. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What town for you? Um, I did it, uh, my mom grew up in Neponce, which is right outside the Rockaways uh, in mm. Queens. So I used to go to stay with my grandparents every summer. And so I would do it uh, right along the beach walk. Uh, and I would sit out there with my grandma and do it. Um, I did not make a few hundred dollars at all. Uh, I, re I remember like getting a 20 and being like, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I put it in perspective. Um, I, I don't, I did not buy a MacBook from it. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the motivation for, for you? Was it, was somebody saying, well, you know, let's, let's show Carly how money works or. Um, I think looking back, both of my parents and both sides of my family, my grandparents too, have an incredible work ethic. My grandfather worked every day till he was 95. Hmm. He got on the bus every single day, came into Manhattan, was like, if I can walk, I can work. And what did all, he do? He was, he was a jeweler. Um, but all of my grandparents worked. Um, and like, also I think, you know, thinking back, that's actually pretty rare for like my grandmothers in terms of like the age that they, you know, grew up in. Um, but they both worked and started their own businesses actually like later in life, which I think is really admirable. And actually I've never really thought about it before until right now, uh, which is kind of amazing. Um, what kinds of businesses did they start? My grandmother had a clothing and jewelry shop in a hair salon and Ooh. one grandmother, my other grandmother became an interior decorator later in life. 
Um, and so all of them were entrepreneurial in one way or another. And my grandfather, my other grandfather was a window trimmer and like constantly reinvented himself like season to season. Um, and so, you know, when people, we started this, people used to ask us, you know, are your parents entrepreneurs? And I would say no. And then when I think about it, I'm like, oh, of course they are. And they have been. And it just wasn't, they didn't start a startup in the way that, you know, the tech scene startup. But I think all of the people in my family have an incredible work ethic. Um, my dad still works 16 hour days in the office. Like he, like we all just have a really great work ethic of being honest, of being, um, of really knowing that if you put your name on something that like you have to defend it and being someone, you know, my mom used to say, and her father told her, people are always going to talk about you. So make sure they talk about something good and mm. like, make sure that, that you, you know, if you put your name on it, that like you're proud of it. And, um, you know, when I used to try to like fake sick going to school when I was younger, didn't we all? Yeah. Uh, no, I never did. Uh, when how, I used to try to do how that, elaborate did you get though? I'm actually, um, did you heat the thermometer? No, but my I do have an idea Amateur. for a future business one day, which is uh, I'm not, I don't want to talk about it in too much detail. Because, but I will tell you, I am very much looking to productize the excuses I gave growing up to not go to school. I think it's a really good idea. But that's not, neither here nor there. But I think that I remember my parents being like, "You have a job. Your job is to go to school. Like that. You don't do if you don't do that well. Like you're failing at that." And it wasn't about, like the grade, it was about like showing up for responsibility. And mm -hmm. so I think that was instilled in me very early age. So I think going back to like a lemonade stand or I used to, um, my mom started her own business and I literally worked for her since I was like seven years old. Um, Which was, business was that? She started uh, an event business and a uh, yeah. fundraising business and uh, for charities. And uh, she started it, you know, at home. Like I say, we joke, you know, we started on the couch. She started on a bed. She had a phone, she would make calls. I made her a desk uh, in Woodshop and it said, I love you mom on it. And <laughs> that was cute. her desk. And she had an intern from NYU sit at the desk in her bedroom. And it was just this idea of like, you do what you have to do. You need money to go to school. Like you'll figure out how to do it. You need clothes, like figure out how to get it. And like, you want, you believe in something, you figure out how to bring it to light. And so I think that drive has, was always raised and reared in me. And I know like Danielle, the same thing. What did you guys major in? American studies in English. Okay. I was film, uh, political science and creative writing. So Those we, are the majors that you're not supposed to I major know, in. I know. Yeah, completely. Right? Yeah. yeah. We talk about that a lot. Yeah. Like we, we're the liberal arts yeah. cliche. Yeah, I am totally. Too. But we're all employed. Yeah. So what about this Luckily. advice that, that young people are getting these days to specialize, to pursue kind of this obvious path? I, I actually, I think about this a lot because I have younger cousins and it's really easy to be on the other side of things and be like, you know, don't major in that. You'll never get a job. Like, you know what? Like I, I loved English. I loved film. I loved history. Like I went down paths that helped me enrich that, but I figured out at a young age how to be entrepreneurial in those paths. And I think you have to have that. You don't have a choice not to have it. I don't know if I was doing it over. Like I would probably take classes in a business school, but I don't think I would have majored in business. So my, my little sister is now graduating college and so we had this conversation last night mm -hmm. where she was looking at how much it is to rent an apartment in Williamsburg and Brooklyn? yeah and we talked about <laughs> what her starting salary would most likely be uh -huh. in that liberal arts field like communications is it PR it's not marketing because that would be like too far in the finance world uh, so I think that the advice that I said to her and I, th I think I give people is like, do what you're passionate about, but be realistic about how you're gonna support yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you wanna do something that you love and you feel like you can grow in that field, then make sure you love it enough to have that side hustle, to babysit on the weekends, to be a barista, to be a waitress, because I think that's the only way that I could go into journalism. Like I waitressed after school for months so that I could afford to take a job that was $10 an hour without health insurance. And I think that that's the part that gets glossed over, which is it's a long way up that ladder and you can totally do it, but you need to be able to like have that plan of how you're gonna support yourself. Um, and I think that that's something that we, we definitely talked about when we started our company. Like we had to go into credit card debt. We talked about 
ideally what the jobs we would do, like I was going to be a DJ, which is a horrible idea. Cause I, a DJ? Well, I can't DJ, but I was just like, what's a Danielle job that like, I, I will, I will yeah. do a side hustle at night. I will do be you a dance? DJ. Do you have really no, good music No, taste? like there was nothing. I really Why? admired like the pluck. Like, like, well, I was just like, what can I do at night? Like that has weird hours. And then <laughs> I'm going to take that back. Uh, <laughs> um, Sorry. I'm going to rephrase that. But um, we then realized that we were working 20 hour days and we couldn't have like another job mm. and get the business off the ground. So we had to go into credit card debt. So I think it's, um, it's like, I totally, my heart goes out to people that like love writing and love editing and journalism and all PR and communications and all the jobs that like aren't the ones you're supposed to go into in this economy. Right. I totally think it's like, I want to tell people to do it, but also be realistic, like mm. know what it takes to go into that because you have to love it that much. Carly, tell me about the moment that you met Danielle and your first impression. <laughs> we met, we have the greatest meeting story. Yeah. We met in Rome. In Rome? Yeah, mm -hmm. not made up. We met in Italy. We did the same study abroad program in college, separate schools. We met because we were both, we were in like the student center in this little building. We were both looking for grilled fried artichokes in Rome. And we bought Fried them. artichokes. Yeah, yeah. they're they okay. known for fried yeah. artichokes. And we were both like talking to someone and we were like, oh, you're looking for the fried artichokes too? And I was like, me too. And we were like, let's go find them together. So that was the first time we met. And we went back to Italy last weekend. Oh. Yeah. Did you go to Rome or? No, no, no. It was our five-year anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get fried artichokes? Actually, no. No, <laughs> no. What, what was the best food? It. What was the best food you got this oh, time in Italy? Just pasta. Yeah, we had this amazing, um, like homemade linguine with tomato sauce. It was like three types of tomato. It was just the greatest thing I've ever had. It was great. Why does this partnership work? Because um, a lot of them don't. I think that there's a few reasons. I think that we started this exactly in the same place in life and with the same amount of money. We have, we own the same amount of the company. We've been very open. I mean, in many ways, like this is a marriage. Like our parents spoke before we started, like parents met, like we consider each other's family's family at this point. Um, we were very aligned on like what does success look like? We've constantly done check-ins along the way to make sure we're still aligned. And I think, you know, there's always going to be like when we started, like, you know, or make sure, are we really aligned? Like, you know, having this kind of anxiety, like how much can you trust another person? And I remember like consciously thinking to myself, there's gonna be so many things that are gonna stress us out over the next few years. The thing that I cannot afford to be stressed by is like, do I trust this person? Mm -hmm. Like, it is just like, that can never be a, a doubt or a worry or um, a point of insecurity. And it's, so it's, I think we're, we're very, very aligned. And I think that's something you work at all the time, um, but it's something we're very, very protective of. Hmm. You both have rings on your left hand ring fingers now, so something tells me you got married married yes. after getting business married. At what point does work-life balance start to become an issue for you as an entrepreneur? Because you're already, you know, starting off thinking about, oh, I'm working 20-hour days, yeah. great work ethic. That, that, that's wonderful I, for starting well, a business. I don't think it has anything to do with significant others. I actually think it has a lot to do with like your personal sanity. But I think there's also like, I feel a little bit like we as women in a sense have like also a responsibility to point out that we don't have kids. So like, I think a lot of that, I don't know how to, like we look at our advisors that have kids and they're running their company and they started their company and they got married and they had children and they're doing it all. And those are the people that I look at and I'm constantly like, wow, I think I'm having trouble balancing things, but like, how do you do it in that next stage of life? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where like, yes, yeah, so much, I mean, we were 25 years old when we started this. We were worried about paying our rent and we were worried that we made a huge mistake in like our careers in some sense. but we didn't have like those bigger real worries in a sense. We didn't have a mortgage. We knew that we need to get ourselves out of like credit card debt, but it's, I think when people come to us and they, they ask us about work-life balance, it's, it's almost like I want to, I also want to like caveat that I feel like we were in a life stage where we could afford to take those risks and to work 20 hour days. And I also think our awareness of finding balance didn't come from another person. It came yeah. from ourselves. 
Um, it had nothing to do with like external factors. It was that we were running ourselves into the ground. I mean, we you can only run on adrenaline for so long, and you know we're five years old at this point, or about to be five, and that's a huge, huge moment for a business, especially a startup in this climate, and yeah. like something. I think what I'm most proud of is that like we're still functioning, like we're still here. <laughs> yeah. Like we, uh, the first few months, I mean, we we were gonna drop. Like we we hadn't worked out. We weren't sleeping. We weren't eating well. I um, went home to Chicago like six months after we started the company, and my parents hadn't seen me, and they were like, "Oh, you need to like take care of yourself. You look awful." And I think that. Um, a lot of it is we're really close with our families. Oh. So if they don't see us or like we're going off the grid, like they call us out on everything. Um, I think it's also just a sense of, I remember someone said this to us and it took me a while to like figure out what it meant. But like, if you're not alive, there is no company, which like is, you know, like an, an obvious sense, but it's also we're serving a demographic that we also represent. Right. So if we're not out there, like, living life and experiencing these different things, then how can we create products that fit into our audience's day to day? Do you guys have distinct roles that you either had from the beginning or have emerged over time? I, uh, yes and no. So I think we're both co-CEOs, we're co-founders. Mm -hmm. um, we are co-editors in chief. So there's a lot of similar skill set that we, there are things that we just do really well together. Um, like when we create products, when we talk about the voice, like those are all things that we have come together to, to start and that's why we created the company as partners. I think the day to day, we split up. Um, and that's something that took a while because we do have the same skill set. So it was kind of an evolution, it was lots of conversations over time, but we're also very clear that like our job is to communicate with each other all day long so that we can jump in. Um, and if I'm spending more time on the media part of the business and Carly's spending much more time on the subscription part of business, that we can jump in and out because we keep each other up to date all day long. Hmm. Carly, at what point did the business model become clear? Was it clear from the beginning or? It was, I, I, I would say certain parts of it were really clear in the beginning. Um, we've talked a lot about what we didn't know, like as a you know as founders, first time doing everything. And I think we, we've spoken really publicly about that. But I think there were a few things that we really did know. One was like, we knew email was gonna be a marketing tool for us. We knew the audience, we knew how to talk to them. Why did you know that? I can't explain it. It was, it was truly instinct. Um, we just knew it. Well, but that, I think it goes back to like, we are the audience. Yeah. So we knew how we woke up. We knew how we wanted to get information delivered to us. And we knew how much time we had before and we I ran out the door. we also knew, I mean, I'll say like, we were very well aware. There was a lot of people who've done email newsletters and monetized with advertisers. Like that's right. not innovative. Yeah. We didn't start, we didn't think, oh my God, look what we figured out how to do. We had the benefit of talking to a lot of those founders and saying, what worked for you? What would, if you had to do it over today, what would you do? And so with that, we knew email had to be a marketing vehicle for us. And we knew, like I would say day one was, we knew if we got a really loyal base, we would be able to activate them in a certain way to monetize them. We didn't know exactly how we would activate them, but we, that was the plan. Uh, over time, it became much clearer, okay, this is gonna become a sponsorship part. This is gonna become a subscription part. This is gonna become the community that we have. Um, those things, you, I would I would be shocked if anyone could have predicted all of those things. Um, those things came to light over the last few years. We're celebrating the 10 year anniversary of the modern smartphone. The iPhone was introduced in what? I guess it was June 29th. Uh, of 2007. Very impressed that you know that. Mm -hmm. I've been covering technology for a while. <laughs> um, and and if, you know you know how we journalists are about yeah. anniversaries. It's an excuse to I tell a story. Yeah. So you guys are five years old. Mm -hmm. You were sort of born at the halfway mark. Yeah. How important has the mobile lifestyle been to the evolution of the skin? I think it's everything. It's everything. I mean. Our audience, on average, looks at their phone 126 times a day. How do you know? Read some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Journalist. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, it's everything. Um, I think what we are really good at is understanding this audience and understanding this audience's routines because a lot of it is our own routines. It's, a, it's the people who work here's routines, and it's the community that we talk to all the time's routines. So. We're more addicted to our phones now than we were five years ago. 
I watch stuff on my phone now. I didn't even do that two years ago. Um, I listen to podcasts now. Didn't do that six months ago. Podcasts? Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> so weird. Always listen to this. But I don't know if you should yeah. think about doing one. Uh, but um, I think for us, you know, we are very in tune to what are we doing on our phones. And not only our phones, but like what are the other moments in our day when we have a second to to um, either have a question or have a second to learn something. And what are the, the mediums for delivery for that? Hmm. How are you guys different? Oh, oh. Uh, I, it's interesting. I think that um, we have really similar skill sets as we talked about. I think we're different people. Like we have different personalities. I think you're different people too. Yeah, but I think, <laughs> um, I think it takes people that work with us some time or like that, that work with us as a company, so our investors or, you know, we're very in sync when we create things together, but we have different points of view. We handle things differently. I think, um, I definitely, I'm from the Midwest. I think I'm very like personable upfront. Carly has more of that New York, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> a little bit more of a wicked sense okay, of humor, I can, I can perhaps. Uh, wicked sense of humor. No, bit. I no? think, but I think what I think that that is like what people see, and I think that we're very we're kind of flipped in some ways mm -hmm. when people actually get to know us. But I think one way we're really similar, which actually has driven a lot of the company vision, is that we're both introverts um, who have had to become extroverts. Like when we thought about what we were gonna do for a living, if it if anyone had told us like it would involve being on camera or speaking all the time on behalf of something, that's like terrifying and not I mean we were producers. We were happy to be behind, behind the, camera. the camera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I would echo all that. I think we have um we always have the same end goal, but I think how we get there is sometimes different. I also you guys eat are cheese. drawing very sharp lines of distinction. I, have. I, I was going to say, I also <laughs> eat cheese. So yeah. like, oh, I, okay. I, we have right. different, totally different eating habits. Aside um, from the artichokes. Yes, yeah, aside from artichokes. Oh, we're also, pasta. I am a uh, procrastinator, like 110%. And really, like, hate, like, she has to get things, like. I also, um, I think our thought processes are different. Like I'm very reactive in the moment. Um, I love like a freestyle brainstorm and I'm like, what about this? Oh my God, let's do this, done, like let's go. And Danielle likes to take it all in and she likes to ask um, kind of all the questions to everyone she could ask and then make her own opinion where I'm very quick to be like, that's my feeling, that's my gut feeling for better or worse. Um, so I think sometimes that's like interesting as we you know, make product decisions or make decisions in the company. How does that affect the way, the differences, the way you engage with investors? Oh, investors, it doesn't. Yeah. Like we're very much a united front when we talk to investors. Um, I think we're lucky that we have, um, so I think Homebrew Ventures led our seed round. Um, and we've done a lot of product brainstorms with them because they uh, were former heads of product from Twitter and YouTube. Uh, and it's actually interesting that they have a, a co-founder dynamic as well. So I think when we've done, like actually gone deep with investors, which is a different relationship than just like dealing with the board, then they see it come out. Um, but day to day, like we have the exact same response to, to how we run the business and how we deal with our investors. Yeah. How did that relationship with Homebrew start? Um, actually, so we met, so we started in July of 2012, and we met like a whole new network of people. Uh, so we met somebody named Rich Greenfield, who's on here mm -hmm. a lot, and uh, he's a media analyst, and he just, he was one of the first people to believe in us, and he wrote us a check for uh, angel investment. And he you met him up, where? Sorry? You met him where? We met him, so we first, okay, so backtrack, we took a class at Skillshare, um, ironically. It was a class on how to meet a business partner, and we did not need but that. But Skillshare, oh, for so, the people who don't know what it oh, is. Oh, so Skillshare um, is a series of, I would say, classes or courses or workshops um, to acquire a specific skill. Uh, so we took the class, we thought on like how to start a business. It turned out the focus was how to find a business partner. It was the only thing that we actually had in our favor. <laughs> so maybe not the best use of time, but we actually met the teacher in that class became an immediate friend and the person that we actually told the idea of this gift to first. Uh, so his name was Alex Taub. Alex Taub introduced us to a woman named Lori Racine. And she had kind of been in lots of different startups and 
um, just a really wonderful mentor, especially to female entrepreneurs. And she was the first person that we met that she got it. And she was like, I, like she's you know one of our dearest friends now. And she knew Rich Greenfield, introduced us to Rich because she knew Rich's cousin or something. And we met Rich and he wrote us a check, um, I think the fourth month in. Uh, so a small angel investment and he ended up introducing us. So what us. did you have four months in? We had about 25,000 subscribers. That's good. Um, we had With, a lot of brands wanting to reach us. And I mean, anything that we had was just from the two of us writing at night and literally going to college campuses, coffee shops, gyms, and dropping off like flyers during the day. Um, Flyers that said what? Sign up for the skim. Yeah, with like logo. we printed T-shirts um, for like twenty of our friends throughout the country. It's like we read you skim, and we asked them to wear them to like whatever they did during the day and to take pictures of themselves and put it on social media with these shirts. So the traction that we had was all just based off of like us thinking about grassroots. How do you grow? How do you hear about things? Rich ended up introducing us to everyone that filled our seed round over, like by accident. We met lots of people who said no, and it turned out everyone who said yes came from Rich mm -hmm. uh, in the end of the day. So we met Homebrew Ventures uh, the following summer. Uh, we flew out. It was funny. We talked to them on the phone. They were really nice, but we had had experience in the Valley that like no one understood it, and we had no money. So taking a trip to the West Coast was really expensive. The experience um, in the Valley that nobody understood it, does this spring from the fact that we're five years into the smartphone era and everybody's like, email? Uh, I think a lot no, of things. You're first-time entrepreneurs. Okay. It was. It wasn't just one thing. So, like, yes, it was email, but it was also content. It was like, the audience you were going mm -hmm. after. Oh, they hated content. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they all hated yeah. content. They hated email. They thought women were a niche market. That was said to us. I can't even tell you how many times. <laughs> we weren't. We're not engineers, so like yeah. that was a huge strike yeah. against so, us. So yeah. there were a lot of reasons we uh, didn't feel like we could afford to make another trip to San Francisco. But then um, Rich actually was like, you know, you should circle out back with those guys from Homebrew. Like, I don't think you followed up with them. And we were like, okay, fine. They were like, can you come out to California? And I remember we were like, this is just another thing going on our credit card yeah. that we won't be able to pay off. And we went for one day. Like, we got on the plane, landed at, you know, 1030. We were getting back on the plane at 4. And we had lunch with them. And it was, like, the best first date. It was, we were literally, they were the two of us. And they have a co-founder relationship. And it was, um, they got it. And we got it. And, like, by the time we got to the airport, they were, like, well, write your term sheet. And they asked us if we could order for each other. Which we could, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we were, like, this is the easiest test yeah. ever. Yeah. Like, this is a great meeting. <laughs> yeah. Fried artichokes. Yeah. <laughs> no nuts. No cheese. We're good. Yeah. Um, at that point, you get an investment and you do what with it? It sort of allows you to forget about the DJ gig? Uh, yes. Well, at that well, point... Not yet, really. I mean, at that point, we had so much traction, like, yeah, organically. I don't think raised. it didn't solve our financial, like, concerns. Not say. personally, no. no. But it, from the business perspective, it allowed us to hire. Hmm. Um, so we hired our first five people and then seven you people. Who's we your got first an office. Hire? Uh, we hired an assistant, half office manager, half someone for ambassador management, and then we hired that person the same day as we hired um, our head of current head of analytics. Um, and we, it was funny. We were told to find a growth hacker, and we had never heard that phrase. We talked to a lot of people in New York. They had never heard that phrase. Everyone really? in San Francisco mm -hmm. was wow. like, growth hacker, of course, I've got time. <laughs> and we, I, I mean, we had no idea what everyone was talking about. And so we found, we reached out to someone on LinkedIn. And a growth and hacker them. is somebody who figures out Hacks how to- growth. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How to get that virtuous cycle. We understand our analytics of our audience. We who, said uh, understanding who our best users are and how to get more. Mm. Yeah, and that hasn't changed. Yeah. What hasn't changed? That, that job description. Um, even, you know, the, the same objective we had out of that role in 2013 is the same one that we have now. I remember um, it was like January 2nd, right? Yeah. And we did our kickoff meeting in our first office, which was uh, January 2nd, 2013. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, 2014. 2014. And uh, our first office was a little bit bigger than the size of this room, which is not big. Uh, and we came in and we got a teal um, picnic, like plastic picnic blanket, mm -hmm. and we got uh, champagne. champagne and bagels, and we didn't have desks, so like the three of us, or four three of us at first. Yeah. yeah. Uh, four of us sat on the floor and just talked mm -hmm. about like what we were going to build, and yeah. then we had to 
build we, our then desks. We, bought, and, we, yeah. bought, we had two desks that were well, used. Well, Carly had desk building experience. <laughs> uh, we bought two uh, wood shop, actually. Oh. But uh, these were plastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, love you, uh, Mom. I remember. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, so we actually, well, we got we them. We two used. And we, we got went. them from a startup that had failed. And mm-hmm. we remember thinking about, we're really superstitious. So we were like, do we like buy these? Is it bad <laughs> karma to bring it in? But yeah. yeah, then we got help putting the others together. <laughs> What's the best decision you made in the first year? Starting, Starting. the company. Besides that. I... Um, letting our community evolve, uh, we had and naming its ambassadors. Uh, we had all these people mm-hmm. writing into us, and when we when we thought about like how to start, community was like if we had to prioritize our list. Community was like number five. Literally day one, people started writing in. I've never written to anything before. I love what you do, and we had pen pal relationships with people. And um, someone just gave us advice, asked them to share. So we were like, okay. Then they shared, and then we started having a referral program, and so then they started calling themselves brand ambassadors, and we said, call yourself a skin ambassador. And within months, we had hundreds of people around the country calling themselves skin ambassadors. And now we have a program over 25,000 strong that no one has a, comp- has a uh, program like this, and they bring in about 20% of our annual growth. Um, I think that was an Why do they do it? You have to ask them, but I think that there's a few different reasons. One is, I think they believe in the mission. They want the swag that comes with it. Like literally, there's great prizes. But also, um, they're like, a sweatshirt, a t-shirt, a wine tumbler. Uh, yeah. We, but also, it, it, a community has evolved from it, where they are getting jobs from each other. They're meeting each other in real life. They're getting roommates, career advice, and they're getting first access to everything in the company. And I think the best thing that we did was do our fundraiser ourselves. Yes. Um, like in the first year of the company, or at mm. least try to. And I think that that was... There's a lot of consultants that come out, out of the woodwork and are like, oh, for really? a little yeah. bit of equity, I'll do your fundraise. And we thought about it because that was not an area that we were strong in. We never used Excel but before. But I, I think that set our tone as executives and managers and leaders. And that changed how we thought of ourselves. And that changed the trajectory of the company as being one that is run by people that understand the editorial vision because we created it and we are just because we did that doesn't mean that we can't also create the business Um, and I think at that time that was a huge sticking point was like oh you know you can write and you can create a voice and you can create a brand so you need someone else to do the business side and I think that decision in the first year to decide that we were people that could do both even though we hadn't done it before was huge the there's a lot of recent buzz in tech about women entrepreneurs and how difficult it is. Yeah. Whether and women in tech in general and how difficult it is. The medium post on Uber from Susan Fowler that went viral and caused a lot of cultural changes there. And then more recently, uh, the the dust up yeah. over the venture capitalist who was sexually harassing entrepreneurs who were coming to him. Your take on the environment for women right now and the barriers that need to be removed to create more the skins. I have a few thoughts. I think, I think the biggest thing that we've seen actually is that you have to get more women investing and in more actual positions to allocate dollars. Um, and I think when we started, like we did not see I mean, five years ago, there were really like maybe two women that we met with and we met with hundreds of people that said no. And I think two of them were women that could actually write the check for their company. And I think one of the things that we see is... Do either of them say yes? No. No. Um, There are a very small amount of our investors that are women and all of our advisors are women. Um, And when we started, it was very, uh, I think we see it's a lot, we've seen it be a lot harder for women to be the ones to write that check or to invest. And I think there's a lot of reasons why, but I think we need to put women in those positions and we need to make sure that they are doing it. There's clearly systemic issues in this industry. And it's not, you know, before tech, it was Wall Street. I mean, Mm -hmm. so this isn't, you know, this isn't just exclusive to tech, it's it's really apparent in tech right now, but what's gonna be the industry after this? So it's a top it's a top down, bottom up approach. Like women need to be in computer science classes. Women at the top of these companies need to be empowered to be making the decisions, to be able to write the checks. But I think the other thing, you know, we've seen right now there's this um, almost I hate to say trend, but of everyone kind of on high alert 
to be aware of finding, you know, like I'm fighting against the sexism in the industry. We were talking to someone who was bragging to us that he won't speak at a panel unless women oh, yeah. are on the panel. As if that was going to cure the sexism in the tech industry. And it was like, the panel is not the point. Like, that, that's not the issue. The issue is like, are you hiring pe- women for you? Are you, are you ch- making sure that like the women that are interns for you are actually taking computer science classes, whether or not they want to be an engineer or not? Um, are you promoting women to be at the top? And so I think it's about, it's a top-down, bottom-up approach, and it's not ab- it's not about these kind of publicity moments of you know we have you yeah. know if we get invited to one more women in tech event like <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. Um, some of them are wonderful and some of them are great, but that's not solving the issue per se. I think it's also owning the issue in a real way. Like, and that goes into I think a lot of what's done has owning been it, meaning who, I, who I think, needs to own it in a real way. I think there needs to be more of a collaborative part of Silicon Valley in some sense that comes together and creates something that like actually looks at where the issues are and solves it not on a I mean it would be great if if it was a business to business way of doing it but we also know like we're running a startup and we have so little time to think about things like it's hard to gear your head above water, it's but I col- think it's, well, it's a collaborative it's, process. I mean, I think people don't even realize that they have prejudices towards women. Like sometimes I don't even realize that certain things that are happening are actually sexist and are happening to us. Like we had a meeting this morning with uh, someone who you know was a big deal in the media industry, and his female partner was there, and she and he was 25 minutes late, and she said this never would have happened if a, if a man was meeting with them, and I I didn't even think about it, and. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I don't know, maybe you're right. And maybe she's right, maybe she's wrong. But I think it's like pointing those out, those things out to one another. You know, we've had people tell us, you know, we're being emotional. You don't mm-hmm. say that to male founders. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we've had people to ask us, you know, when do you plan on getting married and have children? Like, when do you ever ask that to a male founder? Well, um, and also I offering... try to ask family questions of both. Well, that's, no, that's yeah. you didn't yeah. ask that. No, 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 but I, the way the but, way but, that but I'm saying I, I the way question was the way that we've been asked the way that we've been asked the question was you know I uh, I'd like to buy some secondary for you and it'll help you pay for your wedding. Um, um, we've been told, you know, I mean, like, when, really, in, like, in a diligence yeah. process, do yeah. you have any ex-boyfriends that might come kill you, like that girl at UVA? Oh, my goodness. I think it's also, I mean, we've been asked, like, what is your, in relation to, you know, you know like, future raises or, you know, future investment, like, when do you guys think you'll have kids? Yeah. Like, you can see the math in in these people's heads that are asking the question about... And I will say, but I think the most important thing is it's not just men asking those things. Right. And that's, I think, the what we're talking about of, like, Everyone, it's it's a collaborative fix that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs need to be able to be to have to feel empowered to call people out on that and not feel scared, which is why it's really amazing that a lot of brave people are coming forward and saying, "This is my name, and this is I was sexually harassed." Whereas there's a lot of founders who didn't didn't feel the confidence to be able to come forward, and you know, on the, those less extreme cases where it's on us as much as those people to say that's inappropriate or, yeah. or to call out your coworker and say, just so you know that that was sexist. You would, you don't realize, but you wouldn't have said that to a man. Right. And I think, um, you know, the I reality think- is most people aren't assholes. I don't know if I could say assholes. Sure. But uh, most people are like more cable than great. cable. Yeah. But most people aren't intentionally assholes. So you sometimes need to help each other point out, hey, you're doing something that's inappropriate. But it's also, I think, part of it too is not, it's not just a gender yes. thing. It's a diversity thing in general. Yes. And I think that that's how the problem needs to be viewed is how do we get people that have different viewpoints because it's going to make the companies that you are creating stronger. And it's a business perspective, right? Like this isn't just like we need to be nice to women or we need to get more people of color to into our companies because it looks good it's because it's actually better for what you're creating and it's going to be building a stronger business and i think that that frustrates me that like we all want to be good people and we want to help people up but it's also like there is a if you're an investor and you're looking at a business like you should be investing in the ones that on the flip side i will say the number one thing i hate is when we interview people and i say why do you want to work with the skin and they're like i want to be at a female founded business like what? What does that mean? Don't tell me you like my company because I'm a woman. Like, and I founded it. Tell me why you love the skin. So it goes both ways, and I think it's it's the, to me that's the equivalent of saying I won't do a panel because a woman's not on it. But I think there's a difference between what I was saying, which yeah. is like, 
we're obviously very passionate about this. <laughs> no, but, like, but, but investing in a company because it goes after an audience that's influencing 80% of spending decisions is a good business decision. Mm-hmm. Like right. that is, and, and totally. that's the part that's missing from like this conversation about why diversity is important because it's also driving good economic decisions. Yeah, but it's gotta be smart diversity. Yeah. Right? Because mm-hmm. yes. you know, yeah. I, I look at, there was that Pepsi ad dust up. Yeah. Was it Kendall Jenner? Mm-hmm. I, f- I forget the different It was Kendall. Uh, and I thought, you know, I'll bet you there was like a black person in the room. Mm-hmm. And, but maybe there wasn't a real diversity of thought. Like you right. can't just assume mm-hmm. that because you've got the boxes checked, right. that mm-hmm. frees you from the responsibility yeah. to think around corners totally. and to be critical and to even walk a mile still yeah. in another person's moccasins. It's not like, well, we got all the different sized moccasins in here, so. <laughs> right. No, so that's, that's really mind, right? true. But I think the conversation has to start somewhere. Yeah. And I think encouraging people to actually talk about these things and have these conversations and to talk about like exactly what you said, it's smart diversity rather than just diversity. I feel like the way that tech as an industry is portraying the problem is like, um, there's one fix or there's one solve or if we do this and this then we're good and it's really like it has to be something that people feel like they can talk about and we don't know the best way to solve this so like as an industry we need to start thinking about ways and having those honest conversations and not just when something hits the news because someone said something harassment and there's a new story last question biggest mistake um sometimes thinking too much uh, I think we took too long to roll out Scheme Ahead because we were we had all these ideas we want to do at once and we were like, this has to be perfect. We have to do everything at once. There's so much riding on it. Scheme Ahead is that the that's our subscription app, um, uh, which you can get in the Apple Store for two ninety nine a month, ninety days free. Um, but we, I think we went into analysis paralysis and overthinking things. Um, that's a regret I have. Um, I. I think it's the same thing, just like taking too long and sitting on our ideas um, and not testing things, like not getting things out there just in general and that's all different parts of the company, whether it's like we think a lot about our hiring plan and I think that's great and we have an amazing culture, which uh, we're really proud of, but I also think if we had hired people to test things and you know, like move faster, um, could we have made mistakes and failed faster in different ways um, and I think instead we were so thoughtful about every single thing uh, that it just it, it slowed us down I think maybe not embracing failure as much as we should have early on well thanks for the time thank you thanks thank for the you. story I think it's going to be inspirational you. to a lot of people thank, thank you thanks, thanks for fun. coming to question you. thank you alright that was good I thanks so much have no idea yeah wow 50 minutes My thanks to Danielle Weisberg and Carly Zakin. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. Save big money in your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Sump pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast-iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards.